You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For May 13th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. I think most people, when they think about the ways that policy has advanced the clean energy transition, imagine a world in which progress is made perhaps incrementally, but definitely progressively, where one successful policy leads to another, and the project of energy transition advances with their support bit by bit. And that is indeed the general expectation of policy theory, that public policies can reshape the political landscape as policy successes feed back on the policymaking process, cementing any gains, and leading to new policies that further advance the project. But our guest today proposes that things don't always work that way, and that positive feedback and policymaking can have its limits. Indeed, successful policies can instead engender strong opposition from those who stand to lose from them, and that opposition can actually win back much of the ground they've lost. They can retrench. And then they can salt the land, ruining any chance of their challengers making further gains. In her new book, Short-Circuiting Policy, Dr. Leah Stokes of UC Santa Barbara walks us through several decades of policy formation that was designed to support the deployment of renewable energy, but then was pushed back by vested interests in the utility and fossil fuel industries. Using the examples of four U.S. states, she details exactly how and when and where advocates for energy transition won and then lost long campaigns for renewable energy, in which she calls the, quote, organized combat of energy policymaking. Based on six years of original research, her book offers a set of thoughtful observations about not only how we achieved progress in some states like California, but how in other states that have plenty of renewable energy resources, such as Ohio and Arizona, the potential losers of the energy transition used largely political means to thwart the advance of renewables and even roll it back. But it also offers some helpful insights on the game of policymaking itself and what advocates for energy transition need to do in order to win more often in this organized combat and to lock in their victories. It's a very useful book, and I'm really pleased that Leah was willing to spend a full two hours with me to talk through some of this history and explore her insights. Then in the news segment, we'll update the figures on global renewable energy growth. We'll note an interesting development for grid power prices in the UK. We'll salute the closure of the last coal power plant in a European country. We'll recognize another world record low price for solar power in the Middle East. And we'll notch another indication of the slow death of coal power in the UK. But first, our conversation with Dr. Leah Stokes, recorded April 6th, 2020. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Leah, to the Energy Transition Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You know, we've been 
Twitter buds for a while, and it's nice to finally get a chance to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Today, we're going to talk about your new book, Short-Circuiting Policy, Interest Groups and the Battle Over Clean Energy and Climate Policy in the American States. And so now this is a scholarly work that looks at the mechanics of policymaking, and as such, I think it tries to explain the scholarship of your field in some interesting ways. But what I think will be of primary interest to our listeners is the insights that you offer into the policymaking side of energy transition, what's worked, what's failed, and what advocates for energy transition can learn from that experience in order to be more effective in the future. And, you know, you're not soft-pedaling this. I mean, you clearly identify the fossil fuel industry and the utility industry as the long-standing opponents to energy transition, and you repeatedly assert that advocates for energy transition need to learn from the successes of their opponents mm -hmm. and understand that policymaking is essentially about what you call organized combat between interest groups, which is really quite a different <laughs> tone and frame than I think we usually hear from people, uh, experts in the policy domain. So to begin with, why have you elected to use this framing of organized combat? Yeah, so I build off of the work of two political scientists that are pretty well known for doing research on social policy, things like healthcare, social security. This is Paul Pearson at Berkeley and Jacob Hacker at Yale. And they develop this idea of organized combat. And they really say that policymaking is a fight between winners and losers. And I think that is very true within the case of the energy transition. There are very clear losers from moving away from fossil fuels, whether that's coal or natural gas, what we're now calling fossil gas or oil. And there are some clear winners, namely renewable energy companies, for example. So this is a fight between people who have money on the table and have a lot to lose and people who are trying to really build the future. I just finished reading Russell Gold's book, Superpower for the Climate Book Club that I run on Twitter. And he really comes to a lot of the same conclusions that this is a fight between people who have built a lot of coal infrastructure, have money sunk into that. And it's not just private electric utilities, which is what I focus on a lot in this book. It's also publicly owned utilities. So in Russell Gold's book, you learn a lot about the TVA, and that's a federal government agency, and their role in sort of blocking the clean energy transition. So if you read the history, which hasn't really been written, my book develops that history for one of the first times. If you look at the history of what electric utilities did when they found out about the climate problem. They began in the 1980s, and you can read this fantastic report by the Energy and Policy Institute called, I believe, Utilities New. And it shows that in the 1980s, a lot of these electric utilities, just like the fossil fuel companies that Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway document in Merchants of Doubt, they figured out that climate change was real, it was happening, and the next thing that they did was they understood that it was going to dramatically imperil their profits because they had put a lot of money into coal infrastructure, into gas infrastructure. What's so crazy is that that doesn't end in the 1980s. It goes all the way up to the present day. When you think about around 2011, let's say, a lot of these electric utilities were faced with a choice. They could retire existing coal infrastructure because of new regulations, such as the mercury rule that were coming into play, or they could continue to sink more money into the status quo fossil fuel-based system. 
And unfortunately, a lot of utilities did that. So that's why they're continuing to fight to get, for example, bailouts for their coal plants, as we see in Ohio, or to slow down the energy transition, as we see in places like Arizona. So yeah, I really do think this is about money and power and influence, and it is a fight between advocates and opponents of a clean energy transition. Yeah, and we actually had Russell Gold on the show to talk about his book, Superpower and Building Transmission, back in episode 98. So that'll be certainly familiar to some of our listeners. So as far as the scholarship in your field goes, and this kind of shifting the focus to put conflict between interest groups at the center of the policy change question, how does this work? I I know that you know, you introduced some jargon specific to your field in this book that was new to me, so I have to assume that it's kind of new to some of our listeners, these concepts of positive feedback and path mm-hmm. dependence and lock-in. Maybe you could explain those a bit. Yeah, so research in political science and public policy has identified the fact for a long time that policies themselves can create politics. It's like they make their own weather. And this goes back all the way to somebody named Schatzschneider, who was writing in the mid-20th century, but it's been developed a lot in the contemporary period by scholars like Theda Scotchpole, Jacob Hacker, Paul Pearson, etc. And the basic idea is that when a law is passed, what it does is it redistributes power and resources in society. Think about the Affordable Care Act, for example. All of a sudden, you have people who have health insurance who didn't have it before. You also have healthcare exchanges. You have companies that become vested in the status quo. And that makes it harder to roll back the policy. You can see that even though the Republicans have had the power to weaken the Affordable Care Act for many years now, they've struggled to do it. And that's because the policy can lock itself in. It can basically in redistributing those resources, create new winners who do not want the policy to change, and they'll use their political power to keep policy in place. So a lot of times what we think about is how politics creates policy. So for example, if we were to have a Democrat win in 2021, the White House, and if we were to take back the Senate, that would be a political shift, which would open up an opportunity for climate policy, let's say. But if we were to get climate policy passed, that policy itself would reshape the political system. It would, for example, impose costs on polluting companies. If you think about a carbon tax, for example, what it does is it makes it more expensive to burn fossil fuels. So that reshapes the political landscape. Maybe it puts some coal companies out of business. Maybe it starts to change the incentives for what electric utilities are investing in. So what I'm looking at in this book is the way that policies, in this case, renewable portfolio standards and net metering laws, these are state level laws that I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, which have been really crucial to the clean energy transition in the United States. And these laws were passed in part with the idea that they would reshape the political landscape. If we required 20% clean energy or 50% or 100%, then utilities would have to change their behavior. And we would also start to build these new institutions, independent power producers, clean energy companies, and they would go and lobby for more policy and it would increase over time. So that's that positive feedback. You get one law in place, let's say for 10% or 20% renewables, and then it gets easier to get the 50% target or the 100% target. Unfortunately, what my research shows is that it doesn't work that easily. 
Electric utilities and fossil fuel companies have wisened up over time, and they've learned that they need to block these clean energy advocates from ratcheting up the policy over time. And so that policy feedback process where we just ratchet up our ambition over time has been short-circuited in the States. And that's really what I document across the various cases in the book. So how did you go about researching this? Yeah, so like many others, my first book was building off my dissertation. So when you're a PhD student, you often write a dissertation. That dissertation can be a few papers or it can be a book-length manuscript. And that's what I did. And so beginning in 2013... I started to do a lot of field work and I traveled to a bunch of states like California, Texas, Arizona, Ohio, and Kansas. And I interviewed people to try to understand what was happening with the clean energy transition in these states. And I didn't necessarily set out to tell this sadder story about the way that clean energy is being thwarted. Like many others, including Russell Gold, I set out to tell a happier story about the clean energy transition. But the more I looked at it, the more I talked to people and I looked at the data, the more I understood that the clean energy transition was not happening fast enough and in fact was being held back by electric utilities and fossil fuel companies who had money on the table who were going to lose from the clean energy transition. So like any book, it developed over time. And originally, I had a lot of work on California, which I'm going to write up somewhere else. It probably is a law review article, the history of the clean energy policies in California. But I decided to focus on the states where those battles have been really pitched and where progress has been much slower than we would have hoped. For example, a lot of people think that Texas is a clean energy leader. And for obvious reasons, you know, it has the most wind energy in the country. It built these amazing transmission lines. And I do document that history in this book. But what I conclude, in part by looking at the solar energy law, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, is that Texas could be much farther along than where it is today. And I think that that is why the idea of a Green New Deal or some of the discourse in the climate policy is so important right now, because it reminds us of where we need to be, not just where the policy says we're trying to go, but where climate science, where physics requires us to be going and how fast. And so Texas in 2018 only got a quarter of its electricity from clean energy sources. And that is below the national average. And it's not moving fast enough to really clean up its electricity system. So I think I'm telling a lot of the classic stories about the energy transition in the American states, but reminding people that we have to keep our eye on the prize which is decarbonization at the speed and scale necessary. Right. Okay. So you did, if I've got this right, about 108 interviews with experts as mm -hmm. a part of this research. And you came to this point that we're just not acting quickly enough. And you'll get no argument from any of our listeners <laughs> about that. Uh, I think we all understand that we need to move faster on energy transition and climate action. And some of that history that you just referenced will be familiar to our listeners, in particular, our conversation with Neela Banerjee on episode 109 about the history of big oil's climate denial campaign. Mm -hmm. But in this book, as you just alluded to, you focus on the policy experience of four states in particular, Texas, Arizona, Kansas, and Ohio. So how did you wind up selecting those four states? What was interesting about them? 
Well, I looked at a number of others over the course of the research, including California and Colorado. But what I decided was to focus on places where electric utilities and fossil fuel companies are holding back the clean energy transition, where these battles are playing out in practice. And so if you focus on a case like California, it's really easy to tell that positive story of increasing ambition over time and lock-in. And I think a lot of journalists and people are drawn to those happy stories because they don't want to feel disheartened. But unfortunately, I don't think that that's the pattern overall across the United States. So I was interested in telling the stories that maybe we aren't as excited to pay attention to because they're not as happy in terms of their ending. Right. Okay. So these four states are places where there were clean energy laws and that it looked like there was going to be this positive feedback and this lock-in. But instead, the utility industry came in and started to roll them back in one way or another, which is what you call retrenchment. Exactly. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, let's just dive into these four states and see what we can learn from their experience, starting with Texas. Why don't you give us a short summary of the clean energy policy history there? Well, Texas is a very well-known case. Uh, if you read most books on the energy transition in the electricity sector, they'll talk about Texas. But I went and I did a lot of interviews in the state. I also got archives from a number of organizations. And so I did primary research on what happened. And it's interesting because a lot of the story that I think people tell about why Texas was an early leader, I don't think it's correct. So in the mid-1990s, there was a move across the country to restructure the electricity system. Sometimes this is called deregulation. And that got the electricity system on the agenda in Texas. Texas has a legislature that only meets every two years, and it only meets for six months every two years. So it's hard to get anything done in Texas. So they met for a couple of years, tried to get this passed, and the utilities, for obvious reasons, did not support getting rid of their monopoly. So it was difficult to do. But eventually, in 1999, it finally got on the agenda, and... The electric utilities and the fossil fuel companies were very focused on this big question of how was the electricity system going to be restructured. Their attention was put there. And that provided an opportunity for clean energy advocates to get a renewable portfolio standard on the agenda. So I tell the history of two groups in particular, the Environmental Defense Fund and Public Citizen, and the way they worked over several years to get an RPS on the agenda and get it passed while other actors were not paying as much attention. And I call that general dynamic the fog of enactment, which is this idea that when you're passing a big law, which is new, which is in a technical area, which maybe has interactions between the federal government and the state government, it can be really hard for actors to understand what is this law going to do in practice. And so the policymaking process is ambiguous. It is caught in a fog. There's a lot of uncertainty. And that allowed these clean energy advocates to get an RPS put into the restructuring law. And this was actually the first time of a wave of states that passed their RPSs as part of restructuring laws. So that was a really important policy, and it got implemented very well. And what you'll notice if you follow the Texas case is that every time they pass a law, they're not very ambitious because the fossil fuel companies are always at the table negotiating, and they water the law down. So in 2005, there was 
senators, including Republicans at the state level, who saw this as a success. And they were in rural districts where there were people making money off of wind for the first time. And so they decided that they would expand this policy. So they wrote a new bill. And the important part of that bill was that it didn't just increase the clean energy target. It also invested in transmission. And what's so interesting about that history of the transmission investment is that they didn't negotiate how much money they were going to spend on it. So you'll see this also in Russell Gold's book, but they ended up massively overspending. I believe it was $7 billion that they spent at the end of the day. And that's in Texas. This is not a state that likes to spend a lot of money. So there again, you see the fog of enactment where because it wasn't hashed out the exact amount of money that was going to be spent in the bill, all that ambiguity ended up creating an opportunity for a big win for the clean energy advocates. And I even have uh, lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry quoted in my book saying that if they had understood how much money would have been spent, they would have blocked it to a greater degree. So that ambiguity really worked in the advocates' favor in this particular case. But the story gets darker from there because within that 2005 law, there was also a solar energy requirement. It was actually technically a non-wind target. So if you know about RPS policies, they set a target for how much clean energy you're going to build. And what happens is the cheapest form of electricity is what will actually get built. So RPS is pretty much catalyzed wind energy. They did not catalyze solar because solar was more expensive. So in order to try to build the solar energy industry, what advocates did is that they wrote in a requirement that some amount of the target had to be met with resources other than wind, namely solar. This is called a solar carve out within an RPS. But unfortunately, there were lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry that were at the table when this bill was written. And unlike what happened with transmission, they were very wise at this point in time. And so what they did is that they wrote the bill so that it said goal in one place and target in another. And the advocates all thought that they had won, that they had managed to get a solar energy requirement in Texas. But when it went to the Public Utility Commission, which is the regulator that implements these laws for the electricity sector, the fossil fuel industry kind of said, gotcha, when we use the word target, we meant that to be voluntary. And when we use the word goal, we meant that to be binding. And so for the next several years, there was a huge battle between the advocates and the opponents. It was at the Public Utility Commission. It involved Governor Rick Perry at the time. And at the end of the day, they never implemented that solar energy requirement, which means that Texas is more than a decade behind where it could be on solar. A lot of people look at Texas today and they say, wow, all this new stuff's being built. Isn't this so amazing? But imagine if Texas had actually implemented its law in 2005, how much farther along we would be in that state. So even to this day, Texas doesn't really have a solar net metering policy, which means that if you want to put solar panels on your roof, it's really hard for you to sell that electricity into the grid. So that's kind of the history in Texas. And I think it retells the narrative that a lot of people have. People view Texas as this Republican place that's pro-clean energy and that's winning. And I really try to question that. And I'll also say that a lot of people say that it was Governor George W. Bush that pushed this RPS. And having done the clean energy law, having done the research myself, looked at these archives, that's just not true. This was really pushed by clean energy advocates who wanted to kickstart 
start renewable energy industry. And they were being funded by the Energy Foundation to do that work in the 1990s in a network across the states. For those who were part of that work, I'm sure that sounds familiar. But it was not some kind of Republican idea to get this first clean energy target passed. And I should note that the Energy Foundation is a foundation that funds organizations like RMI. They actually funded the last paper that that I wrote for RMI, which adva- tries to advance clean energy policy around the country. You know, I think one of the interesting things about this 2005 law in Texas in particular was that there was this element of having the state invest in transmission capacity in order to enable the expansion of the wind industry. And this was a key point that Russell Gold brought out in his book about Michael Skelly's experience in trying to get transmission built and how essential the CREZ, the Competitive Mm -hmm. Renewable Energy Zones policy was for getting transmission built out in Texas to support the wind industry and how it really was working. And so one might be forgiven for thinking that that would, in fact, provide a kind of positive feedback, as you put it, so that, you know, you would fully expect that that would lead to a continuing expansion of the industry. And it did for a while. But Mm -hmm. it was when the advocates then tried to do something similar for solar that the opponents really stepped up and blocked. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about the CREZ history is that Fossil fuel companies could also see benefits in those transmission lines. They were sold as a sort of technology neutral thing that you could be wheeling clean energy across those lines, but you could also be moving fossil energy. And if you think about the way that the electricity system was restructured in Texas, what's called ERCOT, there are fossil fuel companies that operate as suppliers. And so what happened was they started to understand that What solar does if it comes into the market at high penetrations, you can see this in a market like Switzerland, is that it shaves peak prices. So it lowers some of those scarcity hours in the year, and that dramatically cuts into profits of these sort of merchant plants. So I think that these fossil fuel companies started to realize that solar was not within their interests to promote within Texas. You know, that makes more sense to me from the perspective of your opponent being a utility, right, Mm -hmm. that's actually concerned about competition on the generation side. But when you say fossil fuel industry, in Texas, that very much means the oil and gas industry, Mm because it's not really so much about coal in Texas. And oil hasn't really been a significant power generation fuel for decades. So that would almost restrict the concept of who are the opponent's in the fossil fuel industry in Texas to gas companies that want to sell gas to power generators. But even that, I don't think, really explains this organized opposition that very much did include oil companies in Texas. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. why don't you speak to that a little bit? Like, how is it that the opposition was so well organized and how did it come to include the oil industry? Yeah, it was a big puzzle for me to sort out, but the main I'll opponents, <laughs> yeah, the main opponents to the clean energy transition in Texas and specifically this solar energy carve out were these two groups that are very closely linked. The Texas Association of Manufacturers, which is a bigger group of lots of big companies including petrochemical companies like Occidental Petroleum, Chevron, the sort of who's who in Texas of fossil fuel companies. And then a smaller group, which tends to intervene at the Public Utility Commission called the Texas Industrial 
energy consumers, the TIEC. Again, this is fossil fuel companies primarily. Um, this is a smaller group of large industrial energy consumers. So what you'll see is that they claim to not want electricity prices to go up. And that is one of the reasons why they oppose these policies, because they say it's going to jack up prices. So, um, you know, there's their industrial energy consumers are big opponents to clean energy across the country. You'll see a similar dynamic play out in Ohio, which I also talk about in the book. But I think there is a generator component to the story. So what I did was I went through the list, which is not publicly available, but for the companies that I could find that are part of the TAM and the TIEC, and I identified which one of them are actually on the merchant side, are selling into the ERCOT market. And it does include companies like Chevron, I believe Shell was another one in the book. And so I document all of these companies that are sort of playing both sides. They're both consumers as well as producers of electricity. And that's where this solar competition starts to make more sense. When you think about the fact that solar, when it gets to higher penetrations within restructured electricity markets, it shaves these peak prices. And so it suppresses those hours in the year when you have scarcity, when it makes sense for these merchant plants to be selling into the market. Because most of the time, these are on-site facilities that are generating electricity at a given petrochemical facility, and they're just making electricity for themselves. But during these scarce hours of the year, which are quite a big problem within the ERCOT system, there are times when you've got these rolling blackouts, when prices in the market go extremely high, you get a lot of scarcity. During those times, they can sell into the market and make quite a handsome profit. And if you were to have solar in the system, it would be shaving the number of peak hours in the year because solar bids zero in a market like this. And if you just look at restructured electricity markets, this is how it works. And you know, when I was trying to figure this out, I met Paul Joskow, who's considered a really important economist who worked a lot on restructuring electricity systems. And I asked him, what do you think? Do you think this would be a reason why a fossil fuel company would oppose solar energy requirement because of this price shaving of sort of these peak hours? And he said, yeah, for sure. So I felt a little better about the argument that I was making there. But I think in general, apart from the specifics and sort of these wonky details, there is a real threat that the fossil fuel industry perceives from cheap solar and cheap wind. They've seen that what we call the learning curve, that the more we produce a given technology, the cheaper it gets. And it starts to push fossil fuels out of the mix. And you're right, we're not burning oil to create electricity contemporarily in most parts of the United States. But of course, a lot of oil is extracted with natural gas right now. So there's a lot of natural gas in the system. A lot of these fossil fuel companies have natural gas as part of their revenue streams. And I think they feel threatened by losing that revenue through a clean energy transition. Yeah, that all makes sense on the generation perspective. But as you pointed out a minute ago, there was also very top of mind for these opponents in the oil and gas industry was the cost of electricity to them because, you know, mm -hmm. it does take a lot of electricity to, to pump an oil well or to run a refinery or what have you. That's where things get a little complex, I guess, because I think we all understand, and certainly as you just mentioned, as more wind and solar comes on the system, it actually drives down the cost of electricity. So mm -hmm. in that sense, 
you would think that they would be welcoming of it because it's actually going to drive down their cost, right? So yeah. there's two conflicting kind of motivations there that seem to be driving them forward at different times or in different ways. Yeah, and you know, it's even stranger on the sort of consumer side because within Texas, and I document this in Texas, and I believe also in Ohio, it's a really bad policy. But within these states, there was a law that was passed in part to try to quell the opposition from the fossil fuel industry, which gave them an opt out. So all of these large industrial energy consumers are not paying any money into the renewable portfolio standard costs. So when they are paying their monthly electricity charges, which of course, industrial energy consumers pay lower rates across the board, they don't have to pay for the clean energy transition. This is terrible, in my view. I think that mm. all consumers should have to pay in, definitely industrial consumers, but they were actually given an opt-out. And that was designed by a lawmaker who wanted to neutralize this opposition. He figured that if it's a consumer issue, if this is really about industrial energy consumers worrying about the cost of electricity, that if they're given a waiver, an opt-out, that they will stand down. But what we saw in practice is that that did not cause those companies to stand down. So not only are they free riding off the system and not paying for the clean energy transition, they're still battling these policies. And that is why I really focus on sort of the generation and production side, because it seems like the consumption side cannot really paint a full picture of their opposition. Yeah, and actually Germany did the same thing. They exempted many of their industrial customers from having to pay for the feed-in tariff that was encouraging mm -hmm. the deployment of solar across the country. Terrible policies across the board. It's very depressing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, another interesting element of this, particularly in Texas, is the partisanship, the mm -hmm. way that the oil and gas industry very much is aligned with the GOP, or maybe it's vice versa, <laughs> and how clean energy, I think, sort of by default became sort of a leftist or a democratic agenda. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? Like, if I were to design our society from a blank sheet of paper, I don't know that I would have looked at energy transition as necessarily a partisan thing. Mm -hmm. So how did we get here? And how is it that partisanship plays such a role in Texas? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. 
We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, solar and wind energy dominated renewable capacity expansion globally, accounting for 90% of all net renewable additions in 2019. Over half of that new capacity was installed in Asia. Globally, renewable generation capacity increased by 176 gigawatts, or 7.4%, in 2019. Solar energy grew by 98 gigawatts, or 20%. Wind energy increased by 59 gigawatts, or 10%. Hydropower capacity increased by 12 gigawatts, or 1%. And bioenergy by 6 gigawatts, or 5%. Geothermal energy increased by just under 700 megawatts. In total, the world had 2,537 gigawatts of renewable generation capacity at the end of 2019, bringing renewable generation to almost 35% of all generation globally. Renewables accounted for 72% of all generation capacity additions globally in 2019, a new record. Renewables have contributed more than half of all new generation capacity globally every year since 2014. Item 2. The low demand for electricity during the lockdown, combined with the mild weather of early spring and strong wind and solar generation, led to negative retail power prices and nearly record low carbon intensity on the UK grid in mid-April. Octopus Energy. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.